it truly is an honor to be here this morning and, and to be able to share a little bit of my story. Whenever I was first asked to preach, I immediately began praying and discerning, Lord, what is the word that you would have me bring uh, and preach to Asbury Seminary? Of course, I had my suggestions. I was like, Lord, I love talking about the Eucharist. <laughs> but through that all, and despite my, despite my suggestions, I found myself continually drawn to this morning's text. And only this morning did I, did I discover uh, that this is our, our uh, daily office reading for morning prayer, uh, which is just how the Lord works sometimes. He surprises us. Here at the beginning of the shortest gospel, before Jesus heals any person, before he uh, performs any miracle, and before he faces the temptation in the wilderness, Mark takes the time to show us Jesus' true identity as God's dearly loved child who brings God great joy. The rush to the cross and the fulfilling of Jesus' mission starts with an undeniable affirmation and acclamation of Jesus' identity. At the moment that Jesus bursts forth from the baptismal waters, he sees the heavens rip open and a dove descends. While some in the crowd say they hear a rumble of thunder, the voice of God is clear to the Son. And it makes a three-part declaration. You are my Son, the Beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Through faith in Christ, we are born again as children of God. We are given the spirit of adoption. And the voice of God that spoke over Jesus at his baptism speaks over us and declares that we are God's children, the Beloved, and we bring God great joy. So if that's the promise, if that's the truth of our identity, why is it so hard to sometimes believe that we are worthy of that love and that God actually loves us? Why has it been so hard for me to believe that God loves me? Accepting the promise that I am the truly loved child of God has been the greatest challenge of my own spiritual journey. Instead of joyfully receiving this unmerited favor, I have strived to earn God's love. In my best moments, I may have appeared to be an exemplary Christian without any problems. But at my worst, uh, in my heart, I, I, was, I was cold. And it started to grow. My heart grew hard. I longed for a relationship that seemed far out of reach. <clears throat> now, I was looking forward to preaching this sermon and I had placed a lot of pride in, in impressing you all with a, a theological acumen and exegetical insight that comes from a proper Asbury Theological Seminary education. Uh, but I've sensed the Lord gently inviting me to lay aside that pride and to be a little vulnerable and to share part of my story. Uh, and so my prayer is that this morning, uh, some part of my story will connect with your story. And God will lead all of us together to understand that we are his children, whom he loves, and we bring him great joy. When I look back over my life, I can easily say that I was closest to God as a child. I have clear memories of, of this intimacy with God. I had no trouble doubting. I never had any fears. Uh, I, I, I could hear the voice of God, and I sensed a calling on my life. If you ask me as a four-year-old, Nathan, what are you going to do when you grow up? I told people, I'm going to be a preacher. As I went through childhood, I started to have some struggles. And the chiefest of these struggles 
was loneliness. Like, soul-crushing, despair-inspiring, spirit-numbing loneliness. I was pretty involved with extracurricular activities, but whether it was baseball or the local 4-H club or uh, at random church activities, I always felt like an outsider. As I look back now, I realized that to cope with these feelings of isolation, I sought to earn people's friendship. I sought to get their respect from things that I did. I found that academic performance uh, won people's approval and got your picture in the local newspaper. As a teenager, I discovered status and sought to be a leader among my peers. I systematically buried my pain deeper and deeper inside me by putting on a smile. I became known as, as the kid that always looked happy. People would say, oh, Nathan, Nathan is so mature for his age, and he's definitely going to be a pastor someday. I allowed each of these things to become a mask that I put on in front of people, and it built a pride in my heart, but it did nothing to numb the pain of unhappiness and loneliness. Now, over the years, I found plenty of other masks to hide behind for the sake of others' approval. I wanted people to like me. And you know, for the most part, it worked. People like people that seem to achieve things and are perfectionistic. I made friends and I appeared to be successful, but I refused to let anyone really get close and see my heart. No one was allowed to see my struggles. No one knew my sadness. Worst of all, I sealed my heart off from everyone. My identity was not found in who I was as a child of God, but my identity was rooted in what I did. This had a devastating impact on my relationship with God. As I allowed my identity to be formed by performance, perfectionism, and status in the eyes of others, I applied those same masks in front of God. I thought, if this is how I get other people to like me, surely this is what I need to do to get God to like me. This was, this was not a conscious conclusion, and, and it really wasn't taught explicitly, but it was reinforced in many ways. One thing I was taught was a rigid legalism. If you have a struggle, there's probably something that you were doing wrong, uh, if, if you, and you don't have enough faith. So you should probably work on praying more, reading the Bible more. If you're sick or injured, just pray. If you're not healed, it's, it's your fault. If you're depressed, it's your fault. When things didn't go smoothly, and in the moments I started to really hate myself, I blamed myself for that, and I said, it must be something that I am doing wrong. I embraced a performance-based faith. Any struggle I had just pushed me further inward and caused me to strive and strive and strive. When my struggles persisted, I just pretended they didn't exist. When I faced rejection, endured a failed friendship, or experienced a trauma in my family, all I did was I found myself angry at God. I quickly lost that childlike faith, and went with it went an experience of God's overwhelming, never-ending, reckless, reckless love. A schism began to form between my heart that longed for God and my head that struggled to believe that I was worthy. As I began to personally encounter the problem of evil, an even darker skepticism about the very nature of God found a place to take root in my heart. The churches I attended and the theology books I read as a curious teenager did nothing to equip me for this struggle. 
At some point, I stopped even believing and expecting that I could experience God's love. I decided that's okay, though. I will still work really hard to have faith. I will, I will know as much as I can about God, and no one will ever know my struggles. The ironic thing is, through all of this, I still sensed an inescapable call into ministry. So I found myself going to college and majoring in Christian education. College was the pinnacle of my struggle. For the first time, I had a regular opportunity to do life with people and, and develop close friendships. But the things that I had used to impress people only made me appear super prideful, overachieving, and unrelatable. While I was a spiritual leader and led a campus ministry, I struggled to believe the things that I preached, and I instead relied upon the gifts that God had given me to appear much closer to God than I actually was in my heart. It wasn't really until my junior year of college that I began to understand the depth uh, of my crisis of faith that I was developing. I took a class on the philosophy of religion. It was taught by a skeptical atheist, and I was the only outspoken evangelical in a class of 20 non-believing students. Uh, late in the semester, we read a book called Why God's Problem, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer, by a guy named Bart Ehrman. Many of you have probably heard of him. The professor somewhat joyously told the story of Ehrman, who grew up as a born-again fundamentalist Christian. During his graduate studies, he encountered uh, biblical criticism, and he started to see the errors and different discrepancies between the biblical texts and the manuscripts, and he said they could not be harmonized or reconciled. So he became a liberal uh, Christian and kind of dismissed the literal nature of the Bible for 15 years, but then later he became a total agnostic atheist because he started to struggle with the problem of evil and suffering. The professor used this story and Ehrman's uh, meticulous deconstruction of the Bible and the application of the problem of evil to be the final nail in the coffin of faith. I knew that my faith was devastated because this book spoke directly to my despair and resonated in my heart, but in the most painful faith-crushing way. I went through the next two years of college, rarely spending time in devotions, yet regularly leading Bible studies. I led worship and played the guitar, but I seldom worshipped. I, I led others on their spiritual journeys, but I refused to be led myself. All this time, my heart grew more and more callous. As I approached graduation, the thought that I should go to seminary was still right on my mind. I knew, I knew that I needed to go, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but really one of my primary motivations for going to seminary was because I didn't want to disappoint all of the people in my life who told me I was going to be such a good preacher. They said, Nathan, you have all of the gifts, and I really didn't know what else I could do. And so I remember sitting in my dorm room one evening, having a crisis, deciding between two different seminaries. There was one that everyone, all my mentors, told me to go to, and then there was Asbury. <laughs> I cried out while sitting in my bed, unsure if my cry was to God or just to the corner in my ceiling. And I said, I don't want to go to seminary. But where am I going to go? I barely even believe in you anymore. 
in these moments of silence, I remembered uh, something from my first year in college. I was sitting in a Bible study, and one of my friends was talking about their pastor, who was a lifelong United Methodist. Uh, he, he spent his life preaching the Bible, but he admitted readily that, that he didn't believe a word of it. In fact, he was an atheist. He, he just stayed in the pulpit for the pleasure of preaching and for the pension, is what he said. As a freshman in college, this story shocked and horrified me. But as I sat on my bed as a senior, I thought, that could be me someday. In the depth of my despair, I heard a voice that I hadn't heard in a long time. It was clear. It said, if you go to this other school for the sake of pleasing others, for pride, for status, you may never know my voice again. So I made a hard phone call. I said no to this school. I made a harder phone call and said yes to Asbury. And I came. I came because I longed for my faith to be healed. I wanted to experience a sincere faith in God's love. And let me tell you, that first year here at Asbury was rough. All the things that I had used as masks in college to make me stand out were not helpful in a place where we were all passionate leaders. Everyone was a theologian. Everyone had things figured out, and everyone could get a 4.0 pretty easily. Uh, every, it seemed like Nathan Weavers were a dime a dozen. <laughs> I'd love to say that my heart was strangely warmed from that first day on campus, but it's been a process. It's, it's been more of a slow melt than a heart set aflame. But I've discovered a few important truths. When we seek to receive God's love through our own actions, we're not going to find it. Human perfection and the perfection that God calls us to are two radically different things. The first demands performance. The second demands loving relationship. Relationship is only possible through vital faith, but performance is the enemy of vital faith. The Lord has spent the past five years breaking my masks and teaching me these lessons. Yet, it has taken until today for me to open up and to share these struggles with anyone other than my wife and two or three close friends. Setting aside the idols of perfectionism, performance, and status has been incredibly hard. Putting my identity in academics is far easier than let, letting Jesus back into my heart and to accept his love. It's easier to receive the fulfillment of helping other people through crisis than to deal with my own stuff. My very understanding of love had to be changed. I had to set aside living with principles and thoughts about God and instead seek the living God and open my heart to experiencing that love once again. Because ultimately, God's love is nothing we can earn. It's freely given. I've realized that when I've been hurt by a friendship or a parent or a romantic relationship, I've used these broken perceptions of love and applied them to how I view God's love. When our relationships seem to demand perfection or are cruel, we tend to think that the character of God and His love demands perfection, or is cruel, or withholds itself whenever we face difficult times. Hmm. God's love does not depend on our worthiness, but 
to quote 1 John, it's because he first loved us that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus performed the only act that could earn us anything. I've had to do a lot of soul work, seeking healing in the schism between my longing heart and my cynical head. I joke sometimes that seminary is a time of constant crisis because the pain of the Spirit's sanctifying work in my heart has been far more excruciating than the appendicitis, two broken bones, and a six-week-long bout with mono that I've endured since being here. Oh, Lord. (laughs) But here I am. I don't have it all figured out. I'm still asking the Lord to help me believe that He loves me. I'm still daily compelled to strive for approval and put my identity in what I produce. It's actually quite amazing. The desire to please others and achieve is something that I struggle with even this morning as I preach this sermon. Whenever I first started working on this manuscript, you know what the biggest thought in my head is? Man, I, I just really want to make Dr. Tennant proud. And I hope I don't disappoint Jessica. But for me to be authentically myself and to share and be faithful with the gift God has given me, the pursuit of perfection must be set aside. I'm becoming far more honest with myself, and I've been honest with the Lord. And here's what I feel the voice of Jesus telling my heart. It's nice to see the one I've known and loved all this time. All of our stories are different. Your pain, your sorrow, your masks, they're different from mine. But here in this place, in this time, the Lord is inviting you to accept your identity as God's beloved child. We're called to be known by this alone and not by the false narratives put on us by friends, family, and by ourselves. The word spoken over us today is this. You are my child. You are deeply loved. And you bring me great joy. For the longest time, I thought my struggle with accepting God's love and letting this be my identity was something that I alone struggled with. But I've come to hear many stories from many of you that are not that different from mine. Stories of doubt. Stories of fear. Stories of feeling unloved. The invitation today is to begin laying aside our striving and open our hearts to the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. We are God's children, and He loves us. There have been weeks that the only prayer I could mutter was, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This morning, you might be sitting in your chair, your heart pounding just a little bit, Because you sense that this is your struggle too. I've come to believe that that Jesus is, uh, he tells the truth whenever he says that he measures faith in mustard seeds. And I'm confident that he promises to move the mountains of doubt in our hearts. If we don't deal with our identity crisis now, we're going to find ourselves dealing with and struggling with doubt and fear at every step from here on out. 1 John 1.12, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gives power to become children of God, 
We're all here because God has called us into some form of ministry. Experiencing and sharing God's love is an inescapable part of our calling, but the love of God sweetly constrains us to love those around us. If you love out of the natural capacities within yourself, you're going to find yourself continually empty and exhausted. The love of God is a fountain that never runs dry, will empower you to love others. After we leave seminary, we're going to face our challenges to our identity. Like Jesus in the wilderness, we'll be exhausted at times, and we'll need to hear the voice of God echo in our heart and in our head, saying, you are my child, whom I dearly love, and you bring me great joy. Our text reminds us this morning of Jesus' baptism. I love to picture myself standing there on the banks of the Jordan. Before Jesus performs a miracle or publicly teaches, this event and declaration of the Father gives Jesus something he could return to again and again. When the Pharisees are standing around and they start accusing him of consorting with demons for his power, Jesus knows who he is. His identity is secure. When the crowds start picking up stones to throw at him, to stone him, Jesus knows who he is. When Satan in the wilderness tempts him with power, status, and the appearance of missional fulfillment, Jesus knows who he is. You are my child, was the voice he hears. When Jesus was on the cross, dying for you and for me, he heard the voice of the Father saying, You are my child, whom I dearly love, and you bring me great joy. And Jesus did all of this so that we could know that love too. You're going to need to hear these words echoing in your heart whenever you've just finished leading the third funeral in a month and it's 9 p.m. on a Saturday and your phone rings, you pick it up, and someone's in the hospital. You're going to need the love of God to compel you to go and to care for them. When you find yourself frustrated with the church's matriarch who opposes every good new idea that you have, you're going to have to have the love of God to put up with that. When you're counseling the person who has fallen off the wagon for the 28th time and you're frustrated, you need the love of God to love them. When we get rejected by the world because it thinks that the message we proclaim is foolishness, we need the love of God to fill our hearts and encourage our spirits. When we receive the love of God and open our hearts, it necessarily changes us. It changes the disposition of our hearts. And then, and only then, can we truly love our God and our neighbors. We are enabled to walk in holiness not through striving and human perfection, but through divine action. And it takes the very power of God to understand his love. One of my favorite scriptures has become Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. In this text, Paul describes the love of God as being something too great to understand fully. He says, 
He prays for the Ephesian church. He says, may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and deep the love of God is. Paul longed for his people to not just know about God's love. He prayed they would experience it. Over the last year, I have started to experience the love of God once again. And I pray that you will experience it too. Friends, don't leave Asbury Seminary until you've done your work. Let the Holy Spirit do the healing that needs to be done before you launch out into ministry. As I was studying, uh, I came across a story about Karl Barth. Uh, towards the end of his life, he was doing a tour of America. And uh, he, he, someone stopped him and asked, what is it about, like, if you could sum up all of the theology that you've written over the years, if you could, if you could sum it up in one sentence, how would you describe it? And he looked and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. My prayer is that that could be the song of our hearts today. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Today we have a unique opportunity to come to the table here you can trust to encounter the very power of God that Paul talks about as God's mercy, his grace, and his love meets us in the bread and the wine. We were reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could be filled with thanksgiving, so that we could know that we are children of God. So as you come today, Come with a grateful heart. Come with an expectant, eager heart, confident that God is rejoicing over you. You are his child, and he loves you deeply. Glory to God. Amen.